Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is James Thompson. James is the managing director at Spokes of Bagshot Limited, a bicycle store based in Bagshot, Surrey. Uh, James, good morning and welcome back to the programme. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, James. Morning. Yes, it's uh, certainly a lovely day for it, isn't it? And, um, of course, as I mentioned there, it's not the first time you joined us on the show. Um, we spoke back in uh, June of 2020, so a few weeks into the uh, the COVID-19 lockdown, and a good sort of 12 months or so later, we're still very much in the lockdown, albeit there is some signs of green shoots of recovery. We're moving out of social restrictions now. We've been within the grip of the pandemic in some shape or form for quite a long time so reflecting on the sort of last year by and large James uh, to what extent would you say this has all affected you and affected your business well firstly I can't believe it's been a year it's um it's certainly flown by for us and the, the kind of feeling that I'm getting through talking to a lot of my friends about this who also own businesses is that it's very much polarized sort of boom or bust and We've very fortunately been on the right side of there, and it's been a actually a very transformational year uh, for cycling. Um, so many people, in fact, just before um, this podcast started, I was actually penning a letter to uh, to Prime Minister Boris Johnson, mm. um, expressing my gratitude um, for what he's done for cycling this year. Um, and I remember talking to you last time. And I, I remember being in a bit of a flustered sort of state with, um, with just how crazy our industry had become. And I remember saying how I had wrestled with the um, kind of moral implications of keeping bike shops open. Was it the right thing to do? And a year later, I, I really do think it was absolutely the right decision. Um, not from a personal perspective, but for what cycling's done uh, for people uh, through some very challenging times, uh, enabling them to get some physical uh, and mental health benefits, which have proved to be incredibly important. Um, and our industry has just got busier and busier and busier as more and more new cyclists have, have come to the table. Um, of all levels, it's not just um, sort of one sector, it's every possible sector of cycling from kids' bikes up to electric mountain bikes and nice road bikes and just normal sort of leisure and commuting bikes. Everything has just taken a massive uplift this year. Um, and people really have been hooked by cycling. So for us, it's been a really busy time. and. Uh, it's really tested our business model and 
certainly my leadership this year. That's really interesting, certainly, because we have seen, haven't we, the benefits of good physical health and good mental health during the uh, the pandemic. And that is something that's certainly been amplified. And of course, cycling, when you're sort of maybe with working within a flexible working model and you have a bit of time to get out of the house, enjoy the surroundings and sort of cycle for a moment, clear your head, healthy body, healthy mind. It really, really does help. And I think people have become very, very aware of that. They've become aware of the importance of physical health in sort of trying to avoid the sort of risks and dangers associated with COVID, but also exercise is a good form of helping sort of fuel that mental well-being as well. And I guess sustaining that well-being particularly on the mental health side of things has also been very important for you in sort of your leadership of the business hasn't it because I can imagine particularly in the early days of this pandemic that there were one or two anxious faces within the business people not really knowing what was going on so sort of sustaining morale that's incredibly important in a scenario like that yeah absolutely and this year has been it's been very challenging for uh for the whole country, um, but from a from a personal perspective, we were thrust into something that we know is going to be written about in the history books in times to come, um, and we've all been reacting to this to some extent. There's there's very little preparation you can do for it. And I remember when the pandemic first was a rumor in the Far East somewhere. I remember. Honestly, not taking it that seriously, thinking, "Oh, this won't happen to us. It's just going to be like sort of swine flu or SARS, or you know, we'll just fizzle out and everything will move on." But this has dramatically changed the direction of the world, and um, so to to have a a level of responsibility to ring there uh, to uh, both our, our team, our customers, and our community um, has has been challenging and. As much as I've had some very tough days with this, I've, I've quite honestly enjoyed the challenge and the opportunity to step up and um, and try and make a success of a, a tough situation. And I remember talking to you last time about how I remember trying to almost, to want of a better word, put on a brave face mm. um, to inspire some confidence to, a, to our team in uh, times of uncertainty. And this has got easier as time's gone on. Um, but in the early days when we were genuinely quite scared about, you know, the future of not only business, but, you know, how bad was this pandemic going to get? You know, we saw ambulances going up and down the street all the time and police cars everywhere. And um, you, you never quite knew the full scale of the seriousness of, of this pandemic. And, so to try and steer the ship uh, through this time uh, has been has definitely been an interesting and challenging uh, experience. But I think as we've progressed since last time I spoke to you, um, we've developed this new kind of confidence. And the the thing that I've taken away from it is planning a bit more and taking some pretty big calculated risks. Um, we've we've made some big, <laughs> for want of a better word, gambles this year on stocks. And initially, that was a reaction when people started to um, to almost panic buy bikes and all the accessories. Um, 
I thought a little bit longer term ahead and I knew very quickly that it wasn't just going to be the entry level bicycles, say around sort of five, six hundred pounds that was going to get hit by this. I got a feeling that it was going to go up through the price bracket. So we took on uh, nine new brands this year um, to sort of hedge our bets a bit on, um, on stock and supply issues. And this proved to be a really good decision. Um, as if we were restricted to one or two brands. So I get so many people coming into our shop saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe you've got stock at the moment. And if we were reliant on one or two brands, we really would have nothing in stock right now. So being able to pull from a total of 19 bike brands um, and continuously buy through the year in preparation of depleted stocks because of this huge surge in demand um, I think it's been one of the things that we've called rice on this. And it's got to the point where I'm meeting some of our brands discuss the 2023 ranges. So mm. that's how far ahead we're looking at this now, Scott. Um, to really kind of anticipate the, um, the effect that the COVID pandemic has had on our, our industry. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to be proactive rather than just react to the next chapter of um, of the industry. And it's, it's always felt like a bit of a gamble because we don't know if it's just this demand is just going to stop. And people always say to me, look, do you think there's going to be a load of kind of used bikes flooding the market soon? And um, I think back to myself and all of my friends and most of our customers um, that have all got into cycling and the positive effect that that's had on their life and how gripped by it they've been. And there's been so few people that have just kind of got bored of it and shut the bike in the garage or on eBay and, um, and forgotten about it. So I think there is still some growth left into this, but my job is to kind of really responsibly calculate how much growth this has got in it, how we can kind of keep supporting this growth and limiting the risk associated with that. It's going to be a very interesting time for cycling, isn't it, over the next few months and indeed years. And the reason I say that is because we've seen during the pandemic, as we've sort of discussed um, briefly already, the government's kind of health kick pushing people toward healthier lifestyles and exercise to sort of mitigate any risks associated with viruses like COVID. Now, part of the government's agenda for recovering from this pandemic is of course the build back better agenda and that's been very very well documented we've seen it all over media channels in recent weeks and a big part of that is investments in infrastructure and a big part of that investment in infrastructure is um, that infrastructure for cyclists to allow people to be able to commute to work in sort of um, on their bicycles um, in greener vehicles and th- that being delivered, that sort of infrastructure upgrading, if you will, is going to be really important to encourage a thriving cycling industry in the UK, isn't it? So that's something that we do need to see sort of next on the horizon as we move into this post-COVID world. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually experienced some of this infrastructure the other day. Um, I went with a few friends for a uh, cycle around London. And I must admit, I've never actually cycled in London before. Um, so I was really looking forward to it 
and we we explored the new cycling superhighways that they put in, and I felt so safe riding around the iconic landmarks of London, and it was such a great way to get out and explore our amazing capital city. But you felt so safe. There was just these massive cycling lanes. Uh, you've got your own traffic lights. Uh, you're really away from uh, from vans and cars and taxis um, most of the time. And certainly, as you come out of London, that does change a bit. We did we did carry on going through Hyde Park and Richmond Park, and then eventually out to the sort of Staines and Windsor direction. Um, but central London, they've really nailed it. I think they've used this time um, with so few cars on the roads to invest properly in a in an infrastructure that really works. And I think many people, as London comes back to life, are really going to choose cycling over packed um, tubes and buses. And um, it makes it makes London friendlier, happier, and and just more accessible. And I think they're gonna. Uh, there is undoubtedly work to go in smaller towns and cities, but um, just going around Camberley, which is our nearest sort of town, um, they've used some of the uh, the spaces, uh, like sort of shops that have unfortunately not survived there, um, to use as bike storage destinations, um, which I think is really good. Um, so it is. It is on people's minds. I think local councils and um, and town planners are factoring cycling in for the big future of our country, which is fantastic to see. It is, and we do need to, as you say, sort of see that rolled out nationwide as well, because we don't want sort of that healthier lifestyle just to be accessible to the capital and the southeast. And we do need more sort of local investment into upgrading infrastructure in other places, because if we are going to have a healthy nation, we do need to sort of make that accessible for everybody. And I think because the majority of the public also backs a green economic recovery as well, moving away from sort of transport that's going to be emitting plenty of carbon cycling again is a healthy alternative for morning commutes into work all across the country and so there's something really there that you know we can cash in on as a nation and we could be really on to a winner if we can roll out cycling and really encourage people to sort of take it up on mass i think one of the other the other things that we probably should invest a bit more time in is just sort of driver awareness as well Mm. although i'm hoping that one of the byproducts of um, of this lockdown is more people have experienced cycling and can see um, cycling uh, or cyclists uh, through a different perspective now and just give people a little bit more space and I think as more and more cars go back on the road um, and you know most cyclists are car drivers too and we all have the responsibility to each other um, but just, just taking that little bit of extra care around cyclists um, as the numbers of both traffic and bikes increase simultaneously. It's another part of education that I think we should really be kind of drumming in some new drivers and instilling in some um, some existing drivers too. 
Yeah, certainly raising awareness on that side of things is something that's going to be incredibly important uh, because I think it makes for safer roads as well, safer commutes in the morning as more people take to cycling, hopefully. Um, just before we wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, uh, James, um, I would like to talk about the future of the cycling industry and indeed your business because we are still somewhat in a state of limbo, aren't we? We're not quite fully out of social restrictions yet. We've had the Freedom Day sort of pushed back from this week to the 19th of July, and we still, again, aren't certain as to whether that's going to fully go ahead as planned. Um, so in an ideal world, if we do sort of get the Freedom Day that we're so desperately craving in the next couple of months and we can move out of social restrictions decisively, what sort of year ahead are you predicting for your business and for the industry, and what are you really hoping to achieve? I think we've still got some good times ahead um, with our industry. Uh, I think people might get a little more distracted with other things that they can do, like going on holiday and um, returning to work in some kind of more normal capacity uh, and enjoying, you know, some of the hospitality sector that so desperately needs some um, some in- investment and, and you know, public spending money again. Um, so. I don't anticipate that it's going to be going with quite the craziness that we've had this year, but where people have kind of dipped their toe into cycling and got hooked, we've already seen quite a few people upgrade to some better bikes. So uh, I see uh, I see some further kind of purchases from them. Um, the supply chain is, is a big challenge at the moment. Um, there's a lot of things going on in the world, like you know, COVID, Brexit, um, the shipping challenge in the Suez Canal, like that just couldn't have come at a worse time. Mm. Um, so we've we've experienced a lot of delays this year. That's been a really hard thing to sort of navigate through and manage customer expectation um, because the goalposts keep moving. There's a lot of raw material shortages out there. There's a lot of component shortages out there. Um, so we've just, I've been buying a lot of stock in anticipation that we're not going to get everything that we're ordering, but it's better to have and not need than need and not have, in my opinion. So I've kind of hedged fairly big for the next year and we're already pre-selling uh, a lot of, a lot of products in advance. Um, so we're kind of securing future stock. We're taking orders up to sort of December and January now. Um, so we do have some future business that is built in. Um, and I think we just need to carefully navigate through the next year. Um, again, you know, we don't really know what's around the corner. Like, you know, Brexit's definitely posed some, some challenges for not only our industry, but the mm. rest of the um the, the the economy as well with just getting stuff through the ports um, and the the changing paperwork and uh, and requirements for that. So I think the, the the fallout of Brexit is the next challenge that is going to present ourselves once COVID kind of dies down. Um, but I'm confident that if we if we all look ahead a bit and prepare ourselves as much as we can. Um, and lead our teams in the right direction um, and keep talking to each other, then I think we've, we're all going to have a good year ahead. 
Yes, and I think what business needs is just real certainty, isn't it, over the weeks and uh, months ahead. As you say, um, it's not just the COVID challenge. It has been issues um, associated with the supply chain that have come about as a result of the pandemic and also Brexit as well. Um, the full enactment of that has, of course, come in this year and um, that, that the full extent of it for some, I suppose, is still to be fully understood because we focus so squarely on the COVID situation. So very interesting few months um, ahead and something certainly to keep an eye on as we continue to sort of negotiate other trade deals with other nations as well Um, and I think just given just how much uncertainty there still is I think it would actually be really productive James to once again have you back on the show in future once we get a clearer picture of the post-pandemic world just to see how things are getting on because there's plenty more to come with Brexit I feel Um, we still don't know of course whether social restrictions will be coming or going again in future so we're in this position now, but it could all change in the future still. It could, and I'd love to come back on, Scott. And I'd love to have a holiday at some point. <laughs> of course. <laughs> As I hope you do too. <laughs> It would be so lovely, wouldn't it, just to be able to have that freedom to sort of take your cycle, uh, to take your bicycle abroad and just be able to enjoy a little bit of a change of scenery in that sense. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that we'll be able to sort of venture abroad sooner rather than later. But at least in the immediate future, though, I mean, even though it's so difficult to actually go and travel abroad at the moment, the UK tourism industry has got plenty to cash in on and we can just take our bikes outdoors. We can cycle to sort of different towns around the UK, enjoy domestic surroundings. So I suppose there's still plenty for us to get our teeth stuck into in the short-term future. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's reminded us just how lucky we are with our surroundings and it's made mm. us appreciate what we have on our doorstep a bit more. So, absolutely. I think so for sure, James. Uh, I've got to say, it's been wonderful having you back on the programme with us. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think it's really made us appreciate um, sort of the great outdoors that we have to enjoy in uh, the UK. Um, do, James, please continue to take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on because we're not quite out of the woods with this situation yet, are we? But very confident that better days are ahead of us. Really appreciate you having me on, Scott. And stay safe. Stay safe. And uh, thanks for having me again. I'd extend that to all of the listeners tuning in today as well. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives. And of course, get outside, enjoy a walk, get on that bicycle and just take in the surroundings because we're now in the summer and the better weather is here for sure. Um, It was wonderful having James Thompson, Managing Director at Spokes of Bagshot Limited in Surrey, back on the show with us today. Um, Next up on the programme, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David. David Blunkett. Um, He's going to be coming on to the show to share his take on the events of the last 14 or so months and also his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead of us. Um, That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, 
declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will, in some ways, be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the 
public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been. For, 
all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting 
wide enough advice were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and 
anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, 
adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want 
as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.